blessing upon his word. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for delivering us the account of your deeds of old and of your instruction for your people, not only in the past, but even for us today. We ask that you would uh, give us uh, direction in the truth, you would guide the preaching of your word, that you would make all these words we have heard effectual to us, to direct us, to convict us, uh, to guide us in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this chapter, we come to the last section of the book of Genesis. Uh, I've mentioned before how the book of Genesis is divided up into toledots, or these are the generations of, uh, that phrase, these are the generations of heaven and earth, these are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Terah. Well, these are the generations of Jacob is the last section here of ten of these uh, toledots, ten of these generations, um, division markers that we come to. That's often referred to as the story of Joseph. Again, these phrases, it'll often mention the person's father and basically saying this is what came of that person and his children and his family. Uh, This is what resulted. And Joseph is certainly prominent throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. It's probably better thought of the story of Joseph and his brothers, um, perhaps even more precisely as the story of the sons of Jacob. Of course, Jacob is still in the picture. He doesn't die until chapter what, 49 or 50. Uh, and so it's still the story of Jacob as well, but especially now focusing on his 12 sons who are going to become the patriarchs, the, the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so are very important, obviously, to the story of God's dealings with his people. But often, as is the case in the book of Genesis, uh, the story begins with a conflict among brothers, a conflict that had already been brewing, in this case, in the life of Jacob. There had already been strife in the household of Jacob uh, through the trickery of Laban, through the multiple wives that he had, and strife among his children and distrust Uh, that was resulting, we already saw conflict between the sons of Leah and their father at Shechem. Um, And now this conflict begins to affect the brothers themselves. Will this conflict tear apart the family of Jacob? How will the plan of God and his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob be fulfilled? We have hatred and envy introduced in this passage. But not only that, we also have God's plan. We also have the dreams. These are not daydreams. These are not simply things that Joseph felt really strongly. Sometimes you think about following your dreams, and that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about literal dreams that he had during the night that were revelation from God. It's something that happened back at that time, something that Jacob was already familiar with, but revealed the future to them, uh, that Joseph would be elevated. And they didn't know all the details yet, and not everyone believed, 
what was revealed in the dream, but the reader of this sees both the dream and what's presented in it, but also the sinful deeds of Joseph's brothers and how it looks very unlikely for these things to come to pass. And yet we'll find that they do not overcome it. This passage is both a warning against hatred and envy, and it's also a lesson in the sovereignty of God over the wickedness of man. In this chapter, we find first the rise of hatred and envy, then the expression of that hatred and envy, and then thirdly, the consequences of this hatred and envy. Lots of hatred and envy, as you'll find in this story. First of all then, verses 2 through 11, uh, the rise of hatred and envy. They didn't come out of nowhere. You find them escalating, growing, building, as we come to the first part of the account. In verse 2, it talks about how, how Joseph was, was faithful to his father. He did what was probably the unpopular thing, but he brought a report of the wrongdoing of the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the four of his brothers that he had been keeping a flock with. And he who would be faithful in much later began by being faithful in little. But of course, that would not have made him popular among his brothers. In verse 3, we find that Israel, again Israel being the name for Jacob, loved Joseph the most out of all his brothers and made him a special robe of many colors. Made him a special robe that we don't know a lot about, but seems to have uh, pointed him out as someone special, perhaps as the, almost the heir apparent, because the whole firstborn situation was up in the air. The firstborn, Reuben, had uh, committed sexual immorality with one of his father's concubines, and so already he was probably in danger of losing that position as firstborn. And then the next two, Simeon and Levi, had also slaughtered all the men of a town, um, in some ways, it's not a wonder that, uh, that Joseph was loved more than some of his brothers. The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah also had, had a bad report. But also, this type of favoritism might have been a little premature. It's a little easy to judge things after the fact. Uh, but this, too, would spur the jealousy and the envy of, his, of Joseph's brothers. Israel loved Joseph probably for a lot of reasons, but it's interesting what the text gives as the reason. It doesn't say because he was Rachel's son, although I'm sure that had something to do with it, but because he was the son of his old age. As he grew older, Joseph probably had remained with him the longest, had grown to to, uh, love him and to trust him as the son of his old age. But when... Joseph's brothers saw this. They hated him. They hated him for it. They didn't hate their father for it. Maybe they already uh, held a grudge against him, but they hated the object of this favor. They envied Joseph, and they could not even speak to him peacefully. Then came the dreams. Verses 5 through 8, Joseph tells the dream of sheaves in the field. The children know what a sheaf is? A sheaf? A sheaf, you might know. It's where you take the grain, right? And you bundle it together. 
You might have some wheat or whatever crop you're growing, and you bundle it together and tie it all together. That way it's easier to, you know, to pick up later, but you have to gather it all together first. And so they're farming in his dream, and they're collecting the harvest. Now, even the fact that the collecting harvest has something to do about the future of Joseph, right? You know how Joseph is going to end up providing for a famine, but they're collecting, and most importantly, his sheaf of grain stands upright, and all his brother's sheaves gather around and bow down to his sheaf. Now, Joseph doesn't interpret it, but the brothers pick up on its meaning pretty quickly. Uh, It means that Joseph would rule over his brothers. And so they mocked him. Would you rule over us, little brother? And uh, this was, was ridiculed by his brothers, but it wasn't a daydream. And it turns out it wasn't just an ordinary dream either. This was a revelation of God's plan, as happened in those days. But not only that, but another dream took place too. Just as Pharaoh's dream would later be uh, twice over, the same thing put two different ways. So here, a similar dream. Joseph sees the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. Now, it's even more direct. It's not just to his sheaf, but it's to him himself. I don't know how you see a sun bow down, but... You know, dreams aren't always especially clear on the details, but he sees the sun, moon, and 11 stars, hint, hint, bow down to him. I wonder what those could be. Again, they're pretty quick to pick up on what this means, that Joseph would rule over the household of Jacob, that they would all bow down to him. He even tells his father this one, and his father picks up on the meaning What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? This thing seems incredible. Nevertheless, even though his father rebuked him, his father kept the saying in mind. His father showed more reverence for this, perhaps because he knew how God could reveal things in dreams. He had some experience with this before, especially as a younger brother who had received God's favor. But his attitude is different than Joseph's brothers who were jealous of him. Three times it says that they hated him, and now it says that they were jealous of him. Now, this word for jealous is the same Hebrew word that ESV has translated envied twice already in the book of Genesis. So for just sake of consistency, I'm going to keep using the word envy, although in modern English, often the two get interchanged quite a bit. Uh, But they were envious of him, they were jealous of him, Earlier, we had seen in the life of Isaac that Isaac had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him, and that caused strife and contention. Later in chapter 30, we saw that Rachel saw that Leah bore children, but she saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she envied her sister. Well, here's a third time now that we'll find envy that the brothers of Joseph envied him and the favor that he was receiving. Now, the word isn't used in chapter 4 of Genesis, but the concept is certainly there in the accounts of Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? It's because he envied him. He hated his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were not. 
because God received and had regard for Abel and for his offering, but not for Cain and for his offering. So did he get angry at God? He got angry at his brother, his innocent brother, and envied him and the favor that he had, and he killed him, his own brother. That's what happened earlier on in this passage, and it's almost what happens in this one. Later, Psalm 106 is going to refer to how people became envious of Moses and Aaron at the time Genesis was written. Even Moses' brother and sister began to be envious of his position on one occasion, and God had to rebuke them for that. So hatred and envy show up quite a bit. It's part of life in a fallen world where sin seeks to wage war against our souls and to corrupt. Now, we learn from this first part of the passage that hatred and envy may have provocations, but they still ought to be resisted. Uh, His brothers had reason to be envious. They had reasons that they were hating their brother, that there were things that happened that led to this situation. If you had asked them, they said, well, we hate him because of this, because of this, because of this. It didn't come out of nowhere. It increased step by step. But it was still wrong, and it still is going to lead to worse things. When you meet with provocations, when you're provoked, when you're jabbed, when you see other people prosper or get things that you wanted or get things that you thought you should get, be careful and keep a watch on yourself that you don't become driven by hatred and by envy, that you don't envy your brother or your neighbor uh, like these brothers of Joseph did. Also learn that God's word should be honored and heeded, not despised like the brothers did. They heard the dreams and they were just provoked more. Even if there was some uncertainty about the dream, they should have shown more humility, considering, as Jacob did, this thing in their heart. You should heed God's word. It's not given in dreams anymore. We have it written in, a, in, in the Bible. We have that written before us and ought to keep it. People may mock it, but you should keep it in your heart and revere it. God's plan will not fail. We also learn that the favor of God can provoke the enmity of others, the hatred of others. Not only did Jacob have a role in elevating Joseph, but God himself favored Joseph. God himself sent these dreams to Joseph. He revealed the future, and yet his favor upon Joseph provoked his brothers to envy, as his favor upon Abel had provoked Cain to envy. You are favored by God in Christ, and yet this can bring about the hostility of the world. Even though you have a vision of glory to come, do not be surprised when you meet with various trials like Joseph did. And last application, something I'll come back to in each of these points, consider how Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. How he is a foreshadowing of the Savior to come. In the end of the Genesis, he is going to be a type of Savior, bringing earthly food to sustain the life of God's people as well as the world. But Jesus Christ was highly favored by God, and this brought upon him the hatred and envy of the Jewish leaders. They hated him just like Joseph's brothers hated Joseph. 
Jesus spoke God's word. God's word spoke of him. It spoke of how he would rule over all things. And that he was the Christ. And yet many of his own people rejected him and scoffed at him. And their envy and hatred grew and grew. As you read the Gospel of John, for example, and it continues to escalate until, of course, it reaches the breaking point. And speaking of that, we find that in the story of Joseph as well. Let's look at verses 12 through 28. Not only the rise of hatred and envy, but now the expression of hatred and envy. It breaks forth into deeds of harm. In verses 12 through 17, Joseph goes out to search for his brothers, and this makes his brother's crime all the worse. Joseph had gone through a lot of work to try to find his brothers to, in, to inquire about their welfare for the sake of his father. He went from Hebron up to Shechem, which is like 50 miles, and then they're not even there, and he has to find, ask some stranger and go another maybe 15 miles to Dothan. He's far away from where his father could help him. He's out in a strange country, alone with his brothers, And then in verses 18 through 24, we find that Joseph is cast into a pit by his brothers. First, as he approached, they conspired. They could see him from afar off. He was wearing this colorful robe. They could tell who it was. And they conspired to kill him. At first, they were just going to kill him right then and there. And then they were going to hide his body in the pit. And that was their initial plan. But then Reuben has a plan. He secretly wants to save him, but he doesn't tell them that. What he says is, well, let's not actually shed his blood. Let's just throw him into the pit. But he was thinking to later come back to get him out, to bring him back to his father. And so they, by the time Joseph arrives, they've changed plans. They're still going to kill him, but they're just going to leave him to die in the pit, which is kind of an empty cistern that would be used for storing water, but it was dry. It was in the middle of nowhere. No one would help him there. They're going to throw him there, and they do. They strip him of his robe. They throw him into the empty pit, and then they sit down to eat bread. And so Joseph is languishing in the pit, left there to die. What would become of his dreams? But then, by a twist of providence, something happens which changes the minds of his brothers. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. They sit down to eat in a caravan of Ishmaelite merchants traveling from Gilead to Egypt come by. And so Judah has an alternative. He doesn't know about Reuben's alternative, but he comes up with his own alternative to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They shouldn't kill their own flesh. No, of course, they shouldn't sell their own flesh either, but true, they shouldn't kill their own flesh. That's, that's true. Um, And so he says, well, let's sell him to these merchants. And so they bring him out of the pit. They preserve his life, but they sell him as a slave to a foreign people, to be sold to a different foreign people. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. They unwittingly foil Reuben's plan to save Joseph might have been better than killing him, but it was still quite horrible. This would become a capital offense in Israel. Exodus 21.16 said, Whoever steals a man, whether he sells him or is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. This type of man-stealing and slaving was 
uh, deserve the death penalty, the only kind of stealing that was punished by death. You steal possessions, you give restitution. You steal a person, a person is a lot more valuable than stuff. You were to be put to death. It was a serious crime. And here they do it not only to a stranger, not only to a fellow Israelite, to their own brother. And they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. His sin has always been condemned by God. It's still committed today uh, by human traffickers, uh, but it was done here by the patriarchs of Israel uh, to their brother Joseph. But by this twist, Joseph was saved, and he's moved onward to a place that he would have never been under any other circumstances, uh, alone now, going to the land of Egypt. But see here in this, these verses, 12 to 28, the fruit of hatred and envy. They nearly commit murder and fratricide at that, killing their brother, just like Cain. They're cruel to Joseph. They're callous towards him. They sit down to eat while he's left to perish by hunger in the pit. They rob him of his robe. Then they rob him of his liberty and his family and sell him into slavery. Unless you kill your sinful desires, unless you mortify your bitterness and your envy of others, those attitudes will want to break forth into deeds. Out of your mouth when you're not careful or out of your hands when that envy boils over, Envy and hatred bear fruit in words and deeds that are sinful, that are harmful, that are unnatural. As God told Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Do not let hatred and envy possess you. But again, we find another lesson in this passage, not only to beware of hatred and envy, and what it can do, what it can twist a person into, and as a person embraces it, exercises it, begins to live by it, but also see Joseph as a type of Christ. Again, Jesus was appointed as a ruler of Israel, but he was rejected by his people, in part out of envy. Pilate realized this. It was out of envy that the Jews had delivered him over. They handed them over to the Gentiles to be crucified, even as Joseph's brothers handed them over to the, the other peoples, the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Egyptians. Judas himself betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver, even as Joseph was handed over for 20 shekels. Stephen, in his long speech in Acts 7, mentions both Joseph and Moses as types of Christ's rejection, that even as his brothers had rejected Joseph initially, and then later when Moses shows up, initially they reject him too. Who made you ruler and master over us? And so likewise, as he's preaching to the Jewish leaders, you have hard hearts. You're not receiving Christ now either. Remember the parable of the tenants, where those who had God's inheritance, who had possession of the kingdom, and yet did not want to receive God's messengers. And as he sent, the the owner of the field sent his servants to gather fruit from the crops. First he would send this person and that person, but they one they killed, another they chased off, speaking of the prophets that were sent to Israel. And finally, the owner says, I will send my own son, and they will respect him, surely. 
And what did the tenants do? They said, if we kill the son, then we get it for ourselves. And so they killed him too. Uh, as a parable of, of resisting God's uh, people, God's messengers culminating in Christ. Christ was stripped of his robe, but instead of being enslaved in Egypt, he would be put to death, and he was buried in a pit. Uh, Jesus experienced this rejection, and he did so for the salvation of his brothers, for the salvation of sinners, for the salvation even of those who put him to death, if they would but believe in him and repent of their sins. As we'll find, Joseph later is going to be a great help to even those who sold him to slavery. Lastly, verses 29 through 36, the consequences of hatred and envy. This harm that is done causes guilt, grief, pain, but it does not frustrate God's will. The deed brought guilt upon the brothers of Joseph that would haunt them for years and years. In verses 29 through 30, we find that it brought sorrow to Reuben. Reuben had been hoping to save Joseph, and now his plan was foiled. What shall I do? Where shall I go? He knew he had already been troubled with his father once. Now as the oldest one, he'd be expected to be responsible again. And, but he bows to the will of his brothers as they come up with a deception to deceive their father, and they all participate in that. In verses 31 through 35, a bloody robe is brought to Jacob, causing inconsolable grief. He refuses to be comforted. His sons and daughters cannot comfort him. Of course, his sons trying to comfort him is, is ironic and, and uh, painful to see because they're the ones causing the grief by this story and what they did. There's also an echo of how Jacob had deceived his father. How did he deceive his father Isaac? By killing a goat right? Or having a goat killed and bringing it to his father. Well, now here another goat is killed. Another thing for him to touch and to feel, to deceive their father. In this case, that his son is dead. And so he mourns and feels like he's going to mourn until he dies and rejoins his son among the dead. But then in the last verse, we find that Joseph is sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Joseph, in fact, is still alive. He is not dead like Jacob fears. And in fact, he has arrived at a very important point in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar. So, first of all, again, the the exercise of hatred and envy is sinful. The perpetrators are guilty. The victim is harmed, sometimes greatly. Others suffer great grief. There's a destruction left in its wake. But do the brothers overthrow the dream of Joseph? That's what they thought they were doing. Does their hatred and envy foil the plan of God? No, their actions actually fulfilled the plan of God. This was God's plan all along. How would he make Joseph the ruler over the household of Jacob? How would he exalt him on high? It was actually through this very path 
How else would he get him down to Egypt? How else would he send someone on ahead to provide for them in famine and for all the world, in fact? It was actually through these very means. They did not think they were fulfilling God's will. Sinful men who do sinful things that nevertheless advance God's purposes and performance of his plan don't think that they're helping God when they do so, and yet God can use them. God always uses them to promote his purposes, to fulfill his plan. As Jake, I'll, I'm not going to save this for months, but I'm going to get to the end of the story in Genesis 50. Joseph is able to tell his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant this thing in selling me into slavery for evil, but God meant the same very thing. He meant it. He didn't just see it after the fact and kind of turn it back into a good direction. But he meant that event for good and was sovereign over that very deed, that sinful deed that you are responsible for. It still was a sinful thing that you should repent of, but but God meant it for good, and much good ended up coming of it. Consider the likeness between Joseph and Christ in this respect as well. Christ was crucified by wicked men. Their deeds were sinful. They were guilty. They inflicted pain on Christ, great grief on those who loved Christ. Nevertheless, they fulfilled the plan of God and unwittingly propelled Christ to the throne. How would he receive all authority in heaven and on earth but by the cross, but by Judas's betrayal, but by the flogging and the crucifixion? As Acts 2.23 says, Peter speaking in Jerusalem, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Later on in Acts 4, the people pray to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God works through the actions, the free actions of men, even through the deeds of wickedness and sin, to fulfill his purposes uh, for the good of his people, for for the fulfillment of his promises. And we should be able to rest in that. So this passage is both a warning against hatred and envy, to be on your guard, to mortify these things, to make no provision for the flesh, but it's also a lesson in the sovereignty of God over the wickedness of man. So remember the sinfulness of it and turn from it. Be at peace among yourselves. Do not resent your brother and his prosperity and cool robe that he might have. Do not resent or envy, but seek the good of one another. Rejoice in one another's prosperity. Remember that God works all things according to the counsel of his will, even working the wicked deeds of men, though he is not the author of sin or or sinful himself, but rather is sovereign over all as God, who is not like a man. Remember that you may be hated and envied as a Christian, even as Christ suffered 
as we walk in his footsteps, remembering this hatred and envy was fixed upon your Lord Jesus and that it served his glory and your salvation. So let us give thanks to him as he who suffered for us. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for sending your Son, your beloved Son, your only begotten Son, one with you, one will, one power, equal in power and glory, who dwelt without pain or suffering or change from all eternity past, that you sent him into this world to take upon himself human nature, to partake of our flesh and blood, that he might experience this life, to suffer indignity and pain, to suffer for our sins, to suffer rejection and envy and hatred, and to be despised by men, rejected by many, that our sins would be laid upon him, that he would even die for us, that he might be raised to life and us with him. We ask that you would therefore give us an appreciation for this, a, a, an encouragement through your work for us. We ask that you would build us up into a faith uh, in you that is steadfast amid trials and challenges and hardships. We ask that you would also give us content and contentedness that we might not bite and devour one another or envy others but rather that we would seek to do good to one another and dwell in unity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.